Hallelujah. Father, as we have sung, so now we pray that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word through the application of your scriptures and the obedience and faith of the hearer as well. Lord, we pray, even as we have sung these songs in worship and glorification of Christ, our Lord and Savior, that he would be glorified on the praises of his people, not just on our lips and with the voices that have joined together to sing here, but also, Lord, in the testimony and purpose of the believers beyond these walls as we go to apply the scriptures, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, to be willing and ready and equipped by your spirit to give testimony to the reason of the hope within to spread the gospel, Lord, as a light in a dark place until the morning star of Jesus Christ rises. Lord, in the meantime, I pray that you would use your scriptures, your scriptures proclaimed and understood as a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path and to shine through us to a world lost and dead in their transgressions and sins. We thank you, Father, that Christ is glorified in every aspect of redemption history from that which we will consider today in your holy scriptures proclaimed, foreshadowed, prefigured, symbolized in the word of old, and that which took place in time when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh in the incarnation and fulfilled the Emmanuel promise, God with us, not just to be our friend, but to be our, uh, the one who would go between our mediator, our sacrifice, the one who would take the wrath of God on our behalf, the high priest who would constantly and forever intercede on the ground of his shed blood to secure our redemption and hope for eternal life. It is this Jesus Christ that we exalt, that we praise, and upon which our eternal life hinges, and our hope for tomorrow, and our understanding of his world, and our grasp of his word. I pray today as we open the scriptures that you would open our hearts to receive them. And I pray as we have deeper understanding that you would open our mouth to proclaim. And I pray that you would open our ears to hear that which is forever and immutably the eternal word of Jesus Christ. The flowers may wither, the grass will certainly fade. Everything we see around us will eventually succumb to the end of history. But your word will remain forever, and we too will remain if we are hid in Christ our Lord. It's in his name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. What an incredible grace and gift it is to gather in the name of our Lord to worship Him as we have done so far in song and in prayer, and now to consider His Word and its forever truth. I encourage you to open your scriptures with me to Genesis chapter 30, and let us continue in our series exploring the life of the forefather, Jacob, the patriarch, and the lessons and the illustration of the gospel that is evident in his testimony. Today, is one of those passages that may appear more obscure on first reading. But on closer analysis, we see some interesting truths, and that which will further the glory of God and a deeper understanding of His Word, I trust, as we dig in today. Genesis 30, 25-3-1 will be our primary text today, under this title, Jacob versus Laban. So who is Jacob? Jacob, of course, we have Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, has been charged to carry forth the legacy of the covenant. And we found so far that he's not that great of representative. 
There's plenty of faults and failures and frailty in Jacob's life, including in his family. We've seen the record so far in this passage of 11 sons and one daughter so far, born to Jacob and his now four wives. And it's quite the reality show of dysfunction, as we have discovered. Nevertheless, our title of last week's sermon was Remarkable Grace. The story of Jacob teaches us that in spite of all the sin and its effects, the fallen world and how our heart gets all twisted and contorted by the wickedness within, God can nevertheless redeem any soul who places their trust in the coming Messiah. And for us, in our vantage point in history, God can redeem any soul who places our full weight of our trust in the Messiah who has come. My aim in this morning's message is to understand the testimony of Jacob even through trial. And so today we consider these truths. As you're able and out of reverence for God's word, would you stand once again this morning and let us consider the scriptures in our hearing today. You are listening to Genesis 30, 25 through 3:1. Let us pay attention to God's holy word. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. And Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now then, but now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything, for you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb and the speckled and spotted among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. 34. Laban said, Good. Let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks on them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred, when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's, uh, he put his own droves apart, did not put them with Laban's flock. Wherever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, verse 43, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. 31.1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. 
And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, we have some interesting details and a little bit to learn, perhaps, about ancient customs of animal husbandry today, which means to take care of flocks. And there are some interesting details indeed, as we see behind the scenes of a continual conflict that has gone on for some time. Yeah, even 14 years. Jacob has been with his uh, now father-in-law, seven years plus seven, which was the bride price based on kind of a finagling trickery that Laban convinced him to work. And now those 14 years have come to fruition. He's ready to go home. Laban finds one more way to get some more labor out of his nephew and so convinces him to stay and agrees to some wages. But once again, the uh, agreement is altered. And we see that it doesn't shake down the way it was originally intended or originally assumed to Jacob. Nevertheless, he finds himself once again in this kind of knockdown, drag out battle of wits and manipulation with his uncle and father-in-law. Thus, we have the title of our message today, Jacob versus Laban. This is par for the course. Again, the chickens coming home to roost and you reap what you sow principle is evident in Scripture. Jacob is no stranger to conniving and to trickery and deception. He tricked his maybe less intelligent brother a couple times out of several things like the covenant blessing and like the birthright. We remember Jacob versus Esau in prior messages. But now God is teaching Jacob a lesson, especially in that he has met his match. And so Jacob is faced with this, these two options. Will you trust the God of the covenant or will you trust your own wits and the the, uh, best attempt that you can to secure your future with what's in front of you by negotiating the circumstances and using deception and manipulation and otherwise? So that really is the question. Which will Jacob choose, the promise of the covenant or the promise of his own ability? This chapter signals a change in Jacob's life, I submit. He begins once again to trust in the Lord. He returns to the God of his fathers, at least in heart, and he will return to the land and the altar moments that the God of his fathers had established in the promised land shortly. And this illustrates to us that God, just as he does in our lives, so he did in Jacob, he used life circumstances as instruments in his hand. And by these, he guided his covenant son, to his calling, and back to communion with the Almighty. God will do this in the hearts and lives of his own. He will use even the negative and sinful and dysfunctional circumstances, the fallenness of our state and our lives and our relationships to guide us back to him if we are his. This should be a great reassurance for those who are in the faith that he will only allow us so much leash and then he will reel us back in. In our text today, God is reeling Jacob back in, if you will. At this point in his biography, Jacob is older than we might imagine. He's kind of an old guy. Commentators estimate, you know, looking at the history, he's probably at least 77, if not almost 90 years old. There's some dispute as you add up, you know, all the reference points. Suffice it to say, he's, most of his years are behind him at this point. He dies, as I recall, around 130 So the commentators estimate that at this point in the story, he's an elderly man, and this 
And if this account were merely about Jacob, given this fact, this turning of events in favor of Jacob in our text might appear too little too late, at least for a compelling ending in that sort of fairy tale happy ever after. There really isn't a fairy tale happy ever after in Jacob's story. Jacob himself testifies to this later. You remember that Joseph eventually secured safe passage for his family. Jacob relocates with some 70 other family members. And he's standing before Pharaoh in Genesis 47, 9. And this is how he summarizes his own life. Jacob's own words, quote, The days of the years of my sojourning, which of course means traveling, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. So you see by that testimony that Jacob's own self-assessment of his life after a century and 30 plus years is pretty pitiful. He doesn't consider himself a sterling example, a great patriarch, a forebearer of the faith, a founding father of what will continue to be the great nation of Israel. No, he is acutely and keenly aware of his own frailty, his own sin, his own weaknesses, and so forth. There are are redeeming qualities to Jacob's character. We'll consider one or two today. And even in that confession, I suggest as one, a certain humility, seeing himself in light of the standard of truth. At the end of 130 years, not pretending that he has a leg to stand on, to be justified in his own heart and character before the Lord, but pleading in his testimony to this ungodly ruler, Pharaoh, even this pagan king, that if he is chosen, if he has received the promises, he has done so only because of God's remarkable grace, which was the testimony, or which was the t- uh, title of last week's message. Nevertheless, as obscure as our text may be, may seem at first glance, this chapter in Jacob's life is rich with redeeming allusions to God's future plans and purposes for his covenant people and his covenant son. Unbeknownst to Jacob, Jacob himself is foreshadowing the greatest of legacies to come, even the legacy of Jesus Christ, the eventual son of Jacob to come. Commentator Matthew Henry notes the following quote, The 14 years being gone, Jacob was willing to depart without any provision except God's promise. And this is where we pick up on his story in chapter 30, verse 25, as his troubled relationship with Laban culminates in Jacob's long-anticipated return to the land of promise, having waited 14 years and will find he'll wait another six before he actually gets to step foot back in the land that was promised to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac and eventually will be his habitation, at least for a little while. So that's a little introduction. Let me give you a heading under which we'll consider four aspects of the Scripture's teaching of our text today to hopefully grasp a better understanding of what's going on. The heading is this, Understanding Jacob versus Laban in light of the following. So let's see if we can't understand a little more of this situation in light of its immediate circumstances. That would be the text we've just read itself. And then let's broaden our view by considering some foreshadowings. 
Let's see if we can't understand Jacob versus Laban in light of the exile and exodus foreshadowed in the book of Exodus. Thirdly, in light of a suffering servant foreshadowed, several references there. And fourthly, eschatological, which means end times or future dominion foreshadowed. I suggest to you that Jacob's story anticipates, it foreshadows, it kind of illustrates things to come. And these become more clear with the greater context of Scripture. First of all, though, let's consider the immediate circumstances. Four things are going on. We could divide our text this way, perhaps. First, we have Jacob's request. Secondly, his wages. Thirdly, his fortunes. And fourthly, his calling. Genesis 30, 25. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. So why has Jacob waited 14 years before approaching his father-in-law for permission to head back to where he wanted to return, likely seven years ago? After all, you remember the original deal was Jacob works seven years and he gets Rachel, but he's tricked. Instead of getting Rachel, he's given Leah. And then, you know, Laban finagles and convinces him to work another seven years. And now it's 14. And finally, he gets up the courage and the ambition, the gumption to ask his father-in-law if he could return. Well, why is he asking in the first place? Well, we presume that Jacob, under these circumstances, is something like an indentured servant. The only thing he had to offer was his own labor and basically sold himself into a form of servitude to his father-in-law and to his uncle in exchange for his daughter's hand in marriage. So he's serving, really, under these circumstances with little to no authority of his own, and he doesn't feel like a patriarch. Certainly, he doesn't feel like a called and appointed covenant son. No, he is actually more identifies as a servant and a slave than he does as an important figure in God's redemptive history. Nevertheless, he goes and asks this question. Now, a second reason why he's probably asking at this time, waiting 40, 14 years to do so, is because of a detail in the text that we covered last week. Verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel, listened to her, opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, this is Rachel now, God has taken away my reproach. It is very possible that, that Rachel wanted to remain with her father's family because there was more dignity and identity available within that family structure. If she was removed from it, the painful reminder that she has borne no children, which would secure her favor with her husband and status in that culture, because she was barren, it was it is very likely that Rachel did not want to return with Jacob. We've also seen that Jacob was quite passive at this time, and he kind of goes with the flow. He takes, he rolls with the punches of life. He fails to assert any meaningful leadership, but things are about to change. And one of these first steps is Jacob taking the initiative to go to his father-in-law and ask for permission to go home. So further, uh, just a little note, historical context as well, is under this indentured servitude status. Usually, the children of servants under these circumstances or in this situation would be considered, by and large, the property of the household head. And so, it well would be the case, and I'm sure this was Laban's mentality, that he considered all of Jacob's kids basically his. You know, this is my household, this is my community, this is my village, this is, and, and so forth. So, and yeah, I don't, I don't really think I'd I'm going to let you go. And he, certainly he doesn't grant that Jacob has the right to leave. 
And so the immediate circumstances continue to unfold. Laban recognizes an opportunity to negotiate once again. Perhaps I can get a little bit more labor out of this guy. Laban said to him, verse 27, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And then he says, name your wages and I will give it. A couple details in this passage here. First of all, you may have noticed, how did Laban learn about, or he acknowledges a source of revelation that is pagan, that is sinful, that is idolatrous. He says that he has learned that Jacob is a blessing to him by divination. We learn from this that Laban is not a believer, that Laban has embraced the practices of the wicked nations around him, and in this superstitious paganism, in this witchcraft and divination, he is, charting, he is making his decisions and charting his course through life. This, in the context, our immediate context here, sets Laban up in contrast to Jacob. Jacob is going to learn to listen to and to heed the voice of Yahweh. The covenant keeper, the God of his father, his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and now his God, Jacob, revealed himself to Jacob in a dream all the way back at Bethel, Genesis 28, and said, I will not leave you. I will be with you. I will be your Emmanuel. Only trust in me. You will return to this land. And finally, after Jacob's long ordeal in something like an exile, there is some confidence and some faith returning to him. And we see this especially in the next chapter. And so we have kind of a contrast, do we not? What will you listen to? The voice of the spirituality of your cultural experience? You know how people kind of just judge the circumstances? Probability calculations of the future? Their best understanding and kind of their gut feel and make their decisions? Or will you listen to the voice of the never-failing, never-fading Word of God. Laban versus Jacob. So Jacob is an idolater, or I'm sorry, uh, Laban is an idolater, and we find this in our context here. Nevertheless, he recognizes something else. Even though he says he's learned this by divination, he does confess a truth. He says, the Lord has blessed me because of you. And what Laban, in spite of himself and his wickedness, acknowledges here is this principle covenant headship. He recognizes that having Jacob around is a good thing because there's sort of an overflow effect. Because Jacob is called as a covenant son to bear the legacy and the promise to the next generation of the Messiah who would one day come, wherever he resides, blessings go with him. Those blessings attend us as well, saints, believers in this room. It is a great benefit and blessing to the world around you that you obey the Lord, honor His law, seek to be a good citizen, love your neighbor as yourself, and be obedient and self-sacrificing and a light to the world. This was part of Jacob's calling at this time, was to be a light to Laban. He did not so good a job at it, but things are changing now. The testimony of Yahweh's clear and inarguable word is now bubbling up in his heart. And his confession and his boldness and his confidence is growing. God is sanctifying his servant. Now, if you feel weak, if you feel lack of confidence in the darkness that surrounds us, in the pagan worldview and culture of divination in which we live, we can look to Jacob and see testimony of a weak soul that needed to be reminded by God himself and his word to have boldness and to act in faith. 
and to look to those who've gone before, even Abraham, who God called to a place before he had ever seen it and knew exactly where he was going. You and I and Jacob have a similar call. God has called us to set our affections, our goals, our purposes, and our hopes on a place that we haven't seen yet. Full manifest reconciliation relationship with the Father that will take place in the new heavens and new earth in heaven one day. And so we can relate in a, in a way. Nevertheless, Jacob negotiates for his wages and we, they reach another agreement. Jacob says, you will not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again, or he says, uh, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything, but if you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. And then we have this exchange or this agreement. Let me pass through your flocks today and I'll take all the odd color kind of mutations. <clears throat> the, uh, you know, those with speckled and spots, which would be just a fraction of the flock. And so the negotiation continues. Now, as we see this negotiation happening and these wages being, you know, argued and, and uh, hammered out, we're reminded of what Laban stands for, covenant compromise. Do you remember we considered like a court case? What would Laban's test, if Laban's attorney was going to defend him in court for breach of contract when he was supposed to give his daughter to Jacob after seven years of labor? Oh, oh your honor, you know. My client, the attorney would say, the lawyer said, my client here, Laban. Yes, he, he agreed to give a daughter, his daughter, as a hand in marriage. But your honor, he didn't specify which one. He was assuming Leah all along. And it's not our fault that, you know, the uh, guy bringing the charge here, Jacob, in our mock court trial here, assumed Rachel. So he compromised the covenant, knowing full well what he was doing, and got off on a technicality, let's say. Well, here he goes again. Laban, what does he do? After he agrees to give all the speckled and spotted goats, Jacob says, you know, my honesty will answer for me later. It'll be very clear. If they have odd markings, they'll be mine. If they're ordinary, they'll be yours. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. Now notice, but that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So imagine the court case now and the attorney representing Laban. Oh, your honor. Yes, he agreed all the speckled and spotted uh, animals born from the time of the agreement, but certainly not the ones that were in his flock at the time of the agreement. Are, you know, we can't be held responsible, responsible for the assumption of Jacob, who assumed that all those in the flock and so on. So this is the way Laban operates. And it speaks to his heart, does it not? Will this kind of rationale, will this kind of logic, will this kind of negotiating of life's challenges secure for you riches and importance, greater land holdings in the meantime? Well, yes. Many times it does in a fallen world. But as life continues to unfold and the judgments of God catch up to the sinner, and they always do. And finally, that great white throne judgment that the Bible speaks about, that day of reckoning, which no man will escape. Will Laban's ways and means of negotiating life stand up before the Lord? Absolutely not. 
If Laban does not repent of his covenant compromise, he will, find, he will be found to have a corrupt heart through and through. And God will judge him like the speckled and spotted, those with blemishes, and say, depart from me, I never knew you. There's a contrast in our text today. What covenant will you trust? Will you trust the manipulative terms of man, seeking his best possible future by his own devices, cheating, lying, twisting, stealing, manipulating, leverage, you know, spinning half-truth, white lie, etc.? To, to get the best possible leverage playing king of the hill in life? Or will you be willing, like Jacob? He does not even protest. Testimony I suggest, I submit to his growing faith. In spite of the hardship you endure now, to stand on the promises of God. Jacob, in spite of another covenant in breach, says, all right, and he goes ahead and he, and he continues with the agreement and shepherds the remaining flock of all these ordinary colored sheep. And at the time of his agreement there to be the shepherd once again to Laban, he doesn't have a single goat to his name. But things are about to change. Jacob's fortunes. We have Jacob's request, Jacob's wages, and then Jacob's fortunes. What happens? Well, there's a weird breeding program that Jacob embarks upon. He puts these sticks out, and th there's some mystery here, and I can't tell you exactly what all this means, and, and uh, their different theories apply. One is that Jacob was following practices that are sort of superstitious, or at least short-sighted in the day that if you put out these different colored sticks while the animals were breeding, they would see these you know, altered uh, uh, twigs and whatnot. And then as a result, they'd be more likely to have spotted or speckled offspring. So that's one theory. Another theory is that maybe God in a dream told him to do this. And much like uh, one commentator said, much like Naaman was called to dip in the river Jordan and upon that step of obedience, so that action symbolized obedience. God miraculously healed him. One thing we do know for sure from the next passage, we pick up on this in verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me, Jacob testifying, in the dream, Jacob, I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Suffice it to say, in spite of Jacob's uh, weird breeding practices with this flock, who is responsible for the offspring being speckled and spotted? God himself. It is very clear in the text. Let me give you just a principle for interpretation. This will help you in passages like this. And this section is called narrative. It's just telling the story of what happened. And there's a distinction in biblical interpretation between prescriptive and descriptive. Maybe you've heard of this before. Descriptive is just describing what happened. Prescriptive is you should do the same thing. So it would be an error to read this passage and say, well, you know what? If I carve some sticks, I can manipulate. You know, or if I uh, follow the same practices of Jacob, it's not prescribing something. It's describing something. What, went, what met, well might be featured here is that in spite of Jacob's assumptions, God nevertheless intervenes in the power of his miraculous hand alone. He prospers Jacob. The reason Jacob is prospering really has little to, or nothing to do with sticks and has everything to do 
with God's covenant promises. God increased Jacob and Laban decreased. The stronger, those with the markings particular to Jacob's ownership, these flocks began to grow and to increase and to increase so that after a while, each day that Jacob stayed, Laban's holdings got less and less and Jacob's got more and more. This is a turning of the tables. Before Laban said, yeah, it's great to have you around because I'm getting richer and richer and I'm profiting off your wages. There comes a time, you may feel like Jacob, that this, this world, at the expense of mockery and derision of your Christianity and your strong Christian convictions, you may feel that you are a victim, the short end of the stick, and that you are being used in this life just as cannon fodder for whatever the worldview of the day is. The secular version of you know, Laban's divination of our day, trampling on Christians. And in many ways, when we feel our rights diminished, when we feel our liberties threatened, when we feel our ability to proclaim our faith with boldness more and more sequestered in the public space, we can feel much like Jacob did, that the wicked are benefiting and we are victims. But the message of Jacob is to stand in faith. During times like these, the Lord, though he causes his servants sometimes to go through trials and difficulties, the tables will turn. You cannot mock God and ultimately get away, away with it. Those tables might not ultimately turn until the next life. But what would you rather have? To get the short end of the stick when it comes to herds and flocks in this life, so to speak, and a mansion in glory because you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Or to just abide by, you know, the majority opinion of your hour and to hear one day before the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills, of whom it is said the world is his and all that dwell therein it, depart from me, I never knew you. Those who live their life according to the philosophy of Laban will be cast into everlasting fire when finally the sheep and goats are separated by the judge of all the universe, by the creator of the same, and by the only one whose blood was shed to redeem a hell-bent sinner like Jacob and Laban. Will you trust him? Will you trust his covenant promises that in Christ, the son of Jacob to come, is hope for salvation? Finally, Jacob's calling. Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that, is our, that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. So here's his trouble in the camp, that there are tensions brewing, that there's resentment in the house. And in verse 2, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. In our text today, we can see an inferred here is a restored communion between Jacob and Yahweh, the covenant keeper, the God of his fathers, his God, the one who revealed himself in that glorious dream in Genesis 28, heaven's stairway touching ground in the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. Turn back to Genesis 28 just for that revelation once again to remind ourselves of what Jacob saw and heard. Behold, we see in verse 12, He dreamed, behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and, at the, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, 
and the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall the families, all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Jacob returns in faith to communion with the Lord who had made him this promise. Jacob, who was called to endure some 14 years of privation and suffering loss and very little to his name, has experienced this promise fulfilled in partial measure with his flocks and his prosperity increasing. At the end of chapter 30, presumably he has traded his vast goat holdings for other things. Thus the man increased greatly, it says in verse 43, and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. And now his wealth and influence and holdings rival that which was used to describe Abraham and Isaac before him. But more important than these, you know, than this prosperity, materially speaking, was this truth, that God was in communication and Jacob was listening once again to the true voice of the covenant, to the word of God and to the promises of old. The promises that told him that yes, he would increase in the land, that God would give him the land of promise and that I will be with you. What is the name of Jesus that means God with us? Young people, could you shout it out if you know it? What is the name of Jesus that means God with us? Somebody? Yeah, I heard a couple of you say Emmanuel. You know, we sang that precious name of Jesus today, and it means exactly that, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, that term is printed on so many Christmas cards, and it's so common this time of year that it may be easy to lose the significance of what it truly means. What that name means, Emmanuel, is that heaven and earth are bridged by heaven's staircase touching ground in a way for relationship to be restored that was broken irreparably as far as man is concerned in his sin from the garden on because of the blood poisoning of original sin that came through our covenant head, Adam, who transgressed God's law and now all of us are born with an eternity that separates us, wicked, decrepit, hell-bent sinners, from a holy, majestic, and glorious God. How can it be true that God would dwell with us? Heaven and earth must be moved. A bridge must be made. A staircase must touch ground. And this must be God's doing and God's doing alone. In His remarkable grace, His plan for redemption that was declared from eternity past took place in time and step by step unfolded. And Jacob experienced it by way of promise in that dream. And Nathaniel, the disciple, experienced it by way of fulfillment when Jesus told him, from now on, you will see the heavens opened and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. In John chapter 1, what was Jesus saying? I am the ladder. I am heaven's staircase touching ground. I am Emmanuel. Matthew, I believe, chapter 3 prophesies of Jesus. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. When Jacob confesses faith in the promise that God will never leave him or forsake him, he's confessing faith in a promise of a future Messiah who will bridge heaven and earth at the cost of the wounds 
made from spikes that pierced his wrists and feet and crushed his head with thorns and whipped his back with cat and nine tails. That was the cost of Emmanuel, God with us. And there would be a son of Jacob in the future who would satisfy those terms and conditions that this covenant promise would be true for him who looked to that future reality and faith and for us who believe that Jesus died for our sins in real history to satisfy the debt that we owed. These are the circumstances within the text that can become more clear as we, as we see them in light of the broader testimony of Scripture. Jacob's calling was one that was attended by this promise of Emmanuel, God with us. It had practical steps. Leave the comfortable realm, you know, the comfortable conditions or whatever that you've grown to be familiar with and go back to the promised land. Following that original call of your grandfather, leaving the place of the pagan nations and going to that land of promise. It took that step of faith, but nevertheless, it was attended by this promise. I will never leave you. I will forsake you, what we've come to call the Emmanuel principle. So there's deeper understanding of Jacob versus Laban in light of even these immediate circumstances, but especially as they're seen in the greater testimony of Scripture. And they include other things as well, major point number two, and I might leave a couple of these for future sermons, but just to give you an overview. We can understand Jacob versus Laban in light of an exile and an exodus foreshadowed. Are there similarities between Jacob's experience and, uh, and the experience of God's people in the future? Absolutely. There's similarities in the calling of Joseph. There's similarities in the calling of Jacob's descendants, who would reside in Egypt for 400 years and eventually be conscripted to hard labor slavery. But what does Exodus 1, 7 through 10 say? They prospered in the land, even though they were removed because of the famine and the relocation, temporarily speaking, from that land of promise, Nevertheless, God prospered them in the land of Goshen. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 1. The people of God became numerous. They thrived in the land. And presumably they were a great blessing to the Egyptians who recognized it as such. But what did the scriptures go on to say? There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. That is to say there arose a Pharaoh that was wicked. And like Laban, his heart was eventually turned against the covenant son which was a collective term that referred to all the children of Israel. So <clears throat> when this Pharaoh arose, he conscripted them to hard labor. He didn't recognize the blessing of the covenant. He sought to finagle the situation to benefit his holdings, his glory, his kingdom, his renown. And the people suffered for years and years and years under this tyranny. But should they lose hope? No. Well, what kind of hope did they have under this crushing burden of tyrannical slavery where the world's greatest emperor told them to build his temples and pyramids and sphinxes and whatever at the cost of bat-breaking work and suffering so? Well, they could look back to the testimony of their forefather Jacob and glean great encouragement. Our forefather Jacob, for 14, for 20 years of his life, suffered under the heavy hand of Laban. But God delivered him. You see, Jacob wasn't all that impressive as an individual, but he did have a testimony that would carry forth this pattern of exile unto exodus that his children's children's children one day could look to and be encouraged by. And so that was a message. That was a purpose for Jacob's sufferings. 
Did Jacob realize that at the time? No way. There's no way that Jacob, you know, would be sitting there suffering under Laban's heavy hand and think, you know, this is going to be a great, you know, we know that because he eventually says to Pharaoh, few and evil have been my days. What Jacob didn't realize is that in spite of his weakness, in spite of his frailty and in spite of his sin, God in his remarkable grace was preserving his servant in a way that would be an encouraging testimony to those in exile later. Hang on, your deliverer is coming. The cry of the early church under persecution echoed the cry of believers through all ages. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Have you ever found yourself echoing a similar sentiment? Oh, Lord, when will you return? You know, just looking at the headlines in any particular week can cause us to cry out as exiles, wanting an exodus from this crazy and wicked world. We should be encouraged by the story of Jacob. And we have many more examples of the faith who've gone before, knowing that though God calls us to go through trial during these particular points in time, it is not without purpose, and He will gain the victory in the end. So the people of God prospered in the land. Nevertheless, that prosperity was resented by Pharaoh, conscripted into slavery, but a deliverer would come. And what would he do? He would announce to Pharaoh, let my people go. Exodus 5, 4 through 3, 6, 1 through 9 uh, references there. And the calling was to return to the promised land. And the call was to worship the Lord and offer sacrifices in the wilderness. Did Pharaoh listen? No, he did not. He said no. And so what did the Lord do? Having hardened Pharaoh's heart, thus he began to show him his wonders and tenfold uh, plagues, you know, denouncing and dethroning the whole pantheon of gods in that pagan society began to be suffered upon the land because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And one after another, the Lord showed himself by these great miracles that he is the true sovereign over nations. And that Pharaoh crumbled and fell and eventually submitted to the will and the iron rod in the hand of Jesus Christ through these means. And he was dashed to so many potsherds when eventually as he's chasing the, the exiled now uh, son delivered across, that is to say the people of God, this, the Red Sea, and then in a moment the sea collapses and he is destroyed in the chariots and everything else. And this was... A foreshadow, and this was something that was foreshadowed in Jacob's own experience. A prospering in the land, a call to the promised land, a call to worship, and a despoiling of the enemy. <clears throat> when the people of God left Egypt in Exodus 12, 35-38, they took riches with them and even took converts with them on their way. The riches of Egypt flowed into the hands, just like the riches of Laban's flocks flowed into the folds of Jacob during that time, the despoiling of the tyrant. So that pattern continued into history future when the people of God took with them the gold and jewelry of the average citizens of Egypt as they saw that this God was superior and they better make their allegiance with him, otherwise they die in the wake of his wrath. And so as they poured into the coffers of the Israelites and some of them even joining them on the way, this despoiling of the enemy was pictured in the exile and exodus of God's people. But it was foreshadowed even in their forefather Jacob and his experience. We can understand Jacob versus Laban in light of not just immediate circumstances, exile versus exodus, but also the foreshadowing of the suffering servant. There is this motif or that's kind of a concept or a picture of what Jesus would be that begins to be revealed through scripture in type and picture and shadow in the Old Testament. 
In other words, Jacob was called to be a servant and to suffer unto glory. Does that remind you of someone else? Well, if you know the gospel at all, you immediately recognize the calling of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had a probationary time in the wilderness where he was called to suffer the weight of our sin. And he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was starving, as it were. He was famished because of, of this uh, fasting and so forth. And during the devil's temptation, he survived. There was not one weakness uh, that manifested itself in sin and our Savior during that time. Because during his calling of testing or probation, he proved to be the God-man, the perfect substitute for our sin, the one who could endure the suffering that we deserve, that he might save us. And so Jesus' suffering continues, does it not? He is falsely accused, falsely charged. He's brought before the, as a prisoner before the courts of his day, and the corrupt officials rule against him. Both the politicians and the religious class condemn him to the cruel death of execution, but not before whipping and beating him and mocking him all the while. And in this, Jesus was suffering unjustly at the hands of the tyrants, but a great despoiling was on the horizon. The enemy's riches were going to be returned to their rightful owner. And that which the enemy, in his pride and in his arrogance and in his declaration of rebellion and sinful disobedience against the Almighty had acquired for himself, Jesus Christ was about to secure. And so he did. And when he was resurrected, even death itself was despoiled. The suffering servant is foreshadowed. Imagine Joseph. You know, he was called from pit to prince, one uh, person has said. He was sold by, and Joseph, of course, Jacob's son. He was sold by his family into slavery. He ended up as a servant in Potiphar's house, but he sought to be a blessing to Potiphar's house, and that was recognized. But eventually Potiphar turned against him because of the false testimony of his wife, and so he was thrown in jail. Joseph sought to be a blessing to the jailer, and pretty soon he ran the place in the dungeon. And then he eventually interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and pretty soon he was a blessing serving under Pharaoh, second in command of the kingdom. I submit to you that Joseph, to be encouraged in this calling of suffering unto glory, could look to the testimony of his father, who endured 20 years under unjust circumstances in the house of Laban. And looking to the testimony of his father, he could see, yes, God had purposes in Jacob, my dad. And so I can endure and trust that God, the covenant keeper, will preserve me. And Joseph's just a shining example, a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of the suffering servant. And we've already commented on how Jesus fulfilled that perfectly. Likewise, Moses, he had a shepherding period as well before the Lord called him. This brings up our final point this morning. Understanding Jacob versus Laban in light of immediate circumstances. This exile and exodus foreshadowed. Suffering servant foreshadowed. And finally, this future dominion, or the fancy word is eschatological. That's God's plans and purposes in the end times or the future. So there's a future dominion that is foreshadowed. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13. Again, these are purposes that Jacob could never have realized their, their full weight, but be, become clear to us with the perspective, the hindsight of the gospel. The gospel hindsight is incredible. I mean, we are privileged to look back on Jacob's life and see the glorious hand of God 
which required faith for him, but a lot of it has been revealed to us in a scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them. So who is Paul referring to? Well, those who've gone before, including, of course, Jacob. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And he goes on to detail the significance of the Lord's Supper, what it stands for. But note what Paul says here. He says that what preceded us in the experience of Jacob and those who've gone before, that stands as a witness and testimony for our instruction. So, and the lesson that we are to take away is don't let the temptation to be that, you know, to do like Laban did and fall along the lines of the divination and the immorality of his day overtake you. Remember, God is faithful and that he will provide a way of escape. Therefore, beloved, even though you are suffering, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. In other words, what happened to Jacob serves to give us perspective right now. What happened to God's people in the old covenant serves to encourage us to stand on the covenant, on the word of God, and to reject, to discern, and to put behind us and to confess as sin any of the tempting substitutes for hope for our future that, that we might be presented with today. After all, we are heirs of the ages, the scriptures say. The end of the ages has come upon us, which means that we are in a new era now. Jesus Christ has come. And if you realize how significant that is, that heaven's staircase has touched earth in the person of Jesus Christ, how ought you live in light of that? Well, take a cue from the testimony of those who've gone before, that God has purposes unto the fulfillment and the manifestation of his glorious covenant and his glorious kingdom. There is comprehensive redemption on the horizon. Romans 8, 18 through 25, the gospel not only gives us hindsight, as we've just noted from 1 Corinthians, but also gives us foresight, promises of future glory. And let's close with one reference from 1 Corinthians as we wrap up this message today. There's future dominion uh, on the horizon. When Jacob, 1 Corinthians 15, when Jacob was working for his wages, under the heavy hand of Laban. Only through the eyes of faith could he have imagined and probably didn't even particularly um, have too much hope that his flocks would increase to dwarf those of his master at the time, his father-in-law and uncle. Nevertheless, in the end, Jacob was able to gain a much greater claim and there was a future dominion that was manifest in his experience. This is a foreshadowing of, the fut of our future as well, and that ultimately of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, there is final victory and dominion declared and claimed over everything, this whole world and even death itself, which is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15 as the final and greatest enemy. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you see that this charge applies to us just as it did to Jacob? Jacob, during this time of your servitude, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Remember the covenant, the Emmanuel promise, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And one day there will be a great despoiling of your enemy and you will de declare dominion over the flocks of the evil one. This will happen in every single area of sin's corruption since the fall, even death itself. That is to say, if you trust and believe in the son of Jacob as your victorious savior to reverse the effects of the fall, to redeem that which was cursed, even this world itself, it will be true one day that the meek will inherit the earth and that even death itself there will be victory over that final and last and greatest enemy and that which the enemy sought to steal and to kill and to destroy and harass you with your life long so far as he was able and God gave him permission to do so will eventually be absolutely once and for all judged and removed until all that remains is the glorious reality of Christ's finished work and all that he died to secure including your redemption, a new heaven and new earth, no more tears or uh, sin or pain or hardship or difficulty or depression, discouragement or temptation. This is the future dominion of those who labor like Jacob in faith in the meantime. So let us look to those who've gone before like Jacob for encouragement in this regard, but even more as Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verses 1 and following, Let's look to Jesus Christ. He suffered that we might be victorious. If we look to him who suffered even death itself to secure our future, we, in provisional measure in this life, and then ultimate measure in the next, will join with the victory parade of the Messiah, the great son of Jacob, who defeats even death itself. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the promises of the gospel that are illustrated to us in such glorious ways as we begin to connect the dots through your Spirit's help through all the pages of Scripture, I pray that you would strengthen us for our calling today. And whatever you have purposed us to do in this meantime, that we would do so clinging to the covenant promises of the gospel that in Christ is dominion and hope, not only for our sins to be redeemed and atoned for, and for the satisfaction of the wrath that we deserve paid for on his bruised and broken and bleeding body, but also, Lord Jesus, the redemption of this whole world. Everything, Lord, that you created 
will experience the effects of Christ's glorious work, heaven's staircase touching ground. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith and encouragement to live our lives according to that Emmanuel promise, that if Jesus Christ is ours, then God is with us. And if God is with us, who can be against us? No one. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.